Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today's topic is going to be regulatory oversight of the mortgage servicing industry. And we have a great guest with us today who I'm sure you will enjoy. To begin with, though, we are trying to kick off a new segment, and the segment is going to be hot topics of the industry for the week. This week, we actually will be starting off with the opinion out of the Fifth Circuit in regard to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Stephen, why don't you take it from there and and let's give the listeners a little background about that opinion and, and its possible effects. There was a decision issued by the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit on October 19th in the matter of Community Financial Services Association of America Limited and Consumer Service Alliance of Texas as plaintiffs where they sued the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And the litigation was actually over rules issued by the CFPB governing the uh, payday lending industry. So what does rules governing the payday uh, lending industry have to do with the default servicing industry? Well, it's very interesting in that you all know the conclusion of this case is where it ruled the actual structure of the CFPB unconstitutional. There's some very strong language in this opinion, which is remarkable, actually, for a court of appeals, I thought. I mean, they start this opinion in the very first sentence of this opinion is a quote from James Madison that says, an elective despotism was not the government we fought for, but one which should not only be founded on free principles, but in which the powers of government should be so divided and balanced as that no one could transcend their legal limits without being effectually checked and restrained by the others, a separation of powers. So why this case, while this case involved a challenge to rulemaking by the CFPB, it actually ended up going to the very heart of the creation of the CFPB and how the CFPB is funded. In other words, there is no direct appropriation from Congress to the CFPB for its budget. It comes straight from the Federal Reserve. Uh, The court actually said in their initial opening of the case, one arrow has found its target. Congress's decision to abdicate its appropriations power under the Constitution, i.e. to cede its power of the purse to the Bureau, violates the Constitution's structural separation of powers. With that conclusion, the court ultimately voided the payday lending rule. But what we're all examining right now, as is the CFPB and other entities, are what are the ultimate ramifications of this? Are any of the CFPB's action void? Are there going to be more challenges? You're seeing this issue already being raised in other litigation. Anyone defending a case right now can be saying, is this a void action? So we just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention and, uh, as a legal issue of the week. And it's something that we do need to monitor going forward about the ramifications of this. I assume that the CFPB is going to appeal this decision. Um, We may get a pronouncement from the U.S. Supreme Court as to the ramifications of the financial structure of the CFPB and what that renders to all the CFPB decisions over the last 10 years. So, Steve, do you feel like this is, you know, using the 
I guess, Mariner's thought or terms. Do you feel like this is a thunderstorm out in the Gulf of Mexico, or do you feel like this is a Category 4 hurricane as it relates to the CFPB and where it may ultimately take their entity or regulations? Well, that's an excellent question, and it could be both, (laughs) one or the other or both. You know, we don't know what other circuits are going to say on this issue yet. We don't know what the U.S. Supreme Court would say. I think the reasoning is there that the funding of the CFPB is unconstitutional and that there is no direct appropriation. But remember, like from the SELA decision a few years ago, which declared unconstitutional the structure of the chair of the CFPB, in that case, they were able to render that part or the appointment of the chair portion as unconstitutional, but validate the rest. That's something that could happen here, too. They could basically say Congress fixed the structure of the fi- financing or the appropriations for the agency, but they would let stand all agency action. So there's a lot of different uh, directions this could take. So it's interesting to watch and uh, it's something that's going to play out over the next few years. Everybody stay tuned. It's going to be interesting. Our guest today attended Boston University, where he received his bachelor's degree in political science and government, the University of Tulsa College of Law, where he received his juris doctorate, the University of Oklahoma, where he received a master's degree in public administration. He also did postgraduate studies at the University of Illinois. He has worked in and around the default servicing industry for over 24 years, with 10 years at the Money Store, Home Ex Servicing, Fannie Mae, J.P. Morgan Chase, Pacific Union Financial, Baby Loan Servicing, and is currently the Vice President of Claims at Mr. Cooper. Welcome to the show, John Dunnery. Thank you, Kate and Stephen. Pleasure to be with you. I am such a fan of the podcast. This is going to be an industry leader for years. <laughs> Thank you and welcome, John. Many, many moons ago, I got to know John when our firm that I was working at at the time did foreclosures in Pennsylvania and New Jersey for the money store. Yes, think Phil Rizzuto and Jim Palmer. Yeah, I'm sure that brings back some memories, John. It sure does, Steve. That was my entry into the business. I had been practicing law for a while before then. I'd gone off to do some teaching at a small college in Missouri. And as I mentioned earlier, starved to death because they don't pay anything. And I was reluctant to change my lifestyle, which was foolish, probably in hindsight. But got a call from some friends who said the money store had bought a operation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and were looking for people to come down. So I drove down from Joplin to Tulsa, was hired that day. And that started my now 20 plus year career in mortgage servicing. One of the questions we have or the main thrust of the show today is what do you see are the main regulatory challenges facing the mortgage servicing industry today? Yeah, I think we're in a much different position than we were back 2008 to 2010. We have spent all the time since then actually getting ourselves, and I'm talking here about the servicing industry in particular, way more compliant. We've had to do that for a number of reasons, obviously because the compliance landscape has changed. The CFEB, of course, has stepped in and now tried to create national standards for servicing. And I think the industry has done a very good job in getting themselves prepared to implement all those servicing rules. And we had several years, of course, before COVID hit and we had this little blip in activity that drove additional compliance work. But over those years, I would mention that 
the level of individuals hired by servicing in the compliance group has astronomically grown. For every one operational person, there's at least two compliance people that are being hired over that period of time. So a lot of effort, a lot of resources, um, a lot of financial capability went into building out that environment for compliance. So now we step into where we are today. And the major concern, of course, is the post-COVID audits, right? That's the primary thing on servicers' minds. When will the CFEB and state, active state governments come into the shops and do a look at what happened during COVID to make sure that the plans that were put in place, the directives that were put in place, reach the customers, reach the customers well, and that good results. I will say that based on the data today, um, it is pretty apparent that it was very successful. Uh, we have a very small number of people who were delinquent in April of 2020, for example, that are still delinquent today. So it appears that all those plans worked and they were well implemented by the services. Yeah, when so, you yeah. talk about compliance, I can tell you, and obviously we see it on the law, law firm side, how exponentially we've had to increase in compliance and background checks and things we have to do from an auditing standpoint and a quality control standpoint. And we're at a point here on a, a law firm side where you're literally hiring employees solely to work on compliance issues, not on billable issues or not on client matters, but literally quality control compliance issues. In the terms of percentage of hirings that you've seen from the servicers you've worked at, you know, what's the percentage these days that you're hiring in compliance versus actual processing of, of loans? Yeah, it's way different. I, I would say that we keep um, the level of compliance people way up versus the changes right around operational people. So leading into COVID, for example, most servicers delinquency book was way down. Therefore, your operational people were being shit. Right. Then we had COVID. We needed some more asset managers to come in to help with the modifications and the deferrals. So there was a slight uptick in hiring there. Um, and now we're back in a more leveling environment now. So now, as you see, and, and it's been the news lately, right? Most services are shedding employees, not just in the originations group, which makes sense in today's environment, but also on the servicing side as well, as we expect to see that small spike in COVID activity play itself out maybe in Q1, Q2 next year. So while we see maintenance of the compliance hiring, right, there's still that variability. I was going to say, how do you see it playing out now with post moratorium CFPB audits and HUD requirements going forward? Yeah, I think more likely um, any type of hiring in that space would be tied to how many states come in. I think most industry servicing industry professionals now have a base uh, population of people that handle the CFEB audits that come in. Most of the services don't get live on-site CFEB audits, right? It's mostly they do that by mail or some other way. The larger services get on-site where you need to have people readily available to manage that on-site. And most states as well do it by mail or some other um, mechanism versus on-site. Now, your larger states, California, New York, Illinois, those states will come in and actually be there when the CFPB is there or on their own. So that requires headcount as well. So, you know, when you talked about expense in the law firm, right, it's the same way on servicing side now, right? There's a whole part of that servicing strip fee that we get that's 
permanently dedicated to compliance. And then the variability part is on the operations, right? So that sunk money is always there per loan whenever we get uh, activity. Um, and, and that dollar amount, and those resources, of course, are not going to helping the customer, right? They're going literally to comply with the compliance requests. So earlier in the show, uh, Steve and I talked about the recent opinion out of the Fifth Circuit regarding the constitutionality of the funding of the CFPB. And the question I posed to Steve was, do you feel like this is a small thunderstorm out in the Gulf or is this a category three or four hurricane coming? And how do you think that may affect the CFPB and consequently the mortgage servicing industry? Well, I think I think it could have a significant effect. Right. So we've had now two challenges to this law, which, you know, if you and I, Steve, go back in time to when the CFPB was being handled in the legislative body at the federal level, there wasn't total agreement on what the CPB would look like, what would happen with it, right? So there was some legislation there where one party was in control, where it was able to be passed. I'm not sure that would happen today, right, given the type of mixed control that we have in the Senate and House today. So now you have uh, the politics that are there, right? And then you have the judicial side where the panel that uh, decided the initial decision, you know, was a Republican imported panel. Now, if it goes to the full Fifth Circuit, that's a little bit different. You're going to have a little bit more of a mix. But you've already had two crucial challenges, one being, you know, how the head of the CFEB is actually put in place, right? So the legislation lost on that ring and there had to be changes. And now you have the challenge to the funding mechanism, right? Which appears to be questionable if you read the opinion uh, from the panel. And it could very well cause some issues um, that will do two things, at least in my opinion, based upon the topic we're talking about today. One, it could delay um, any type of CFEB involvement post-COVID, right? Because they have other things to deal with, not just the election, which is coming up, but this case as well. And then years ahead, of course, it could have significant uh, implications because if the funding mechanism is uh, found to be unconstitutional, how far will the court go, right, with regard to is that the full legislation now that has come to question or can they narrow it down to just the funding mechanism? And then if you have two circuits that disagree and it goes to the Supreme Court, well, you could have years of, of litigation around this, which I think could significantly hamper the CFPB's um, efforts with regard to expansive regulatory control. No doubt about that if the funding gets kicked out. And I'm curious about what happens to all the activity, the enforcement activity, the rulemaking activity, uh, their bulletins, everything they're doing now, if they have no funding, what happens in the future? That's the open question about what, how does the institution and all these employees actually get paid going forward if, if their funding is unconstitutional? Well, we know today, right, that they, the funding would then would have to come from the budget. And that could never happen in today's environment. Correct. Republicans, Republicans would just let the CFPB die. Well, it opens a huge can of worms that I think we're all going to see. And I think every enforcement action that is brought by the CFPB, someone's going to be bringing up this as a defense. So uh, you've seen on your end from your years the, uh, the heightened scrutiny and the heightened regulation from the CFPB. And you see what they're doing these days. How, how do you see future regulation playing out? Yeah, I think future regulation is probably going to focus on how we contact customers. I think that's likely the next big front of activity. Obviously, we want to make it as easy as possible to get in touch with our customers. We want to make it less intrusive. I think that's an industry goal overall. 
And I think we've done a fairly good job at doing that. But of course, there's still going to be some complaints around how often, right, we reach out to a customer who either needs assistance, is non-performing, or if we just have an issue with their account that needs to be resolved. Obviously, we don't want to be calling them every, you know, three hours, right? That, that kind of mentality is kind of gone now. We have way better ways of managing that. And of course, we also have state and federal law now about when we can and cannot. We have the texting thing as well, which I think is the next big front, right? Because that makes it way easier for us to at least attempt contact with a customer that's way less intrusive. They can ignore a text, but it also opens up a window to the current customer that likes to be handled that way. They don't want intrusive calling. They don't want to be constantly called. What they want is to have a little bit more self-control over how they engage with the whole consumer environment, their mortgage being just one thing. So I think if we can overcome some of the rules around that and some of the um, drawbacks with regard to the texting, right? Because we don't want to become the car warranty people of the world, right? In which you know, every three minutes you're getting a car warranty text, right? We don't want to do that, right? We want to find a way that meets the customer's needs, but also meets the demand of the industry, which is we need to find a way to get in touch with the customer to resolve any reason why they're not paying. So, and I believe you suggested it earlier, but to the extent that the the various loss mitigation programs that were available through the CARES Act and through other motivations of the federal government, I think there's, it. they seem to have been very successful. So I think there's going to be less of a fire in the belly of the CFPB to dig in hard on these post-COVID audits. I mean, what, what do you think about that? No, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Kent. I think all of the advanced numbers, right, speak to the fact of how successful these have been. Two things happened there. One, the media and the um, involvement um, from state uh, agencies or even consumer relations agencies are a lot lower because they've been that successful. Secondly, because of the types of programs that were used, there's a significant paper trail, both from the contact with the customer, then reaching out to various websites in order to get help, then the documentation of that help that will make it much easier for the servicers to provide information to the regulatory agencies of just how successful these programs have been. Let me change topics a little bit and ask you about you. So when you're not at work, what are your hobbies? What do you do for fun? What makes you happy when you're not busy being involved in the mortgage servicing industry? Well, other than speaking to the two of you, um, (laughs) I am an avid tennis player. uh, So I play tennis about three times a week, a USTA member. So we have a a doubles team um, that competes in the Dallas region and the Texas sectional. Uh, We were very uh, lucky last year to to have a good season. So that has set us up for hopefully getting into the nationals next year. So we're looking forward to that. Besides that, um, I'm also a runner. I took that up pre-COVID and during COVID since I was home so much more because I wasn't going into the office. I was able to train much harder than I probably actually want to admit. Um, And now I have run probably about 26 half marathons and an equal number of 5Ks and 10Ks. Just did a 5K on Saturday for the uh, local brewery here in Keller, Texas for their Halloween uh, 5K. That was a blast. Um, I'm in that age group right now, uh, Steve, where I don't have as much competition as some of the younger guys do. So Every now and then I get on the podium, which makes me feel good as well. You're, you're inspiring me to get out there and start working out. So, 
Well, as I've often said, I, I only run if somebody's chasing me. So <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'll be there with you. So, John, last question. Um, if you had a time machine and you could go back in time and sit down with a 20 year old version of yourself, what what advice would you give that young man? Well, Ken, I don't know. I might be frightened to actually go back to the 20 year version of myself. Um, but if I had that opportunity, which is a you know great question, I would probably tell myself to be ready for change. I think at a 20-year-old, I would not have anticipated the sheer amount of change that I would have undergone in my lifetime, not just externally, but internally as well. And I would counsel myself to be very flexible uh, in both things that are going to happen to me and happen with me. And I think that probably would have smoothed out quite a few of the wrinkles in my life if I had known that back when I was 20 years old. Yeah, it sounds like good advice for everybody. Well, listen, thank you so much, John, for being on the podcast with us. Um, very interesting insights and pleasure and hope to get to visit with you again soon. Thoroughly enjoyed it, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Look forward to seeing you in Dallas soon. Yeah, you all take care now. <laughs> thank you, sir. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.